You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I gotta tell you something, people. At times, I think I have a pretty exciting life. You know, yesterday was the uh, 10-year anniversary when I flew Joanne out to visit me in Hollywood, in L.A., and, and then she moved out there, and we moved back here and got married, and I interviewed a lot of celebrities, and then I have a guest like the gentleman on my show today who's living in Paris, working in London, and I'm going, man, I'm, I, I have a mundane life. <laughs> my guest is Dennis O'Hare. How you doing, Dennis? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah. So, okay, I need to start Paris. How did you end up in Paris? Because you're a guy from the States. How did that happen? Um, Trump. <laughs> really easy. Donald Trump. Um, the day after the election, my husband, uh, we, we were in bed. And the next morning he woke up and he goes, uh, we got to get out of here. And I was like, oh, I hear you, brother. He went, no, 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 no. We got to get out of here. And I was like, oh, you mean for real? He went, yeah, for real. I went, uh, okay, well. I agree, but let me. Uh, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta sell our apartment. We have to tell my agent who will flip. We gotta find our kid a school in Paris. We gotta find an apartment in Paris. We gotta move. Um, you know, it took us about. Um, it took us until twenty eighteen to actually do it, um, but we did indeed sell the apartment. Um, I'm an Irish citizen. I've had an Irish passport for years through my grandfather, uh, sort of out of Irish pride. But then it's come in handy as I've worked in London a bunch. And then, so I got my son uh, on an Irish passport, and um, that took a while to do. And um, yeah, in 2018, we moved to uh, Paris. Now, yeah. why did you why did you choose Paris? I mean, was it something that you loved? It. I mean, I know I know uh, James Duff and Pat Philip Keen moved over there. Two uh, yeah. two people in the entertainment business. And I'm just wondering. I mean, had you been to Paris a bunch of times, and you thought it was alluring, or what made you choose? I mean, you can choose anywhere. You know, you could choose. Right. You know, I could go. You could go to Croatia. We went there on our honeymoon. It was beautiful. Dubrovnik was beautiful. But Great. What made you choose Paris? You know, it's funny. Um, having that much choice is actually kind of paralyzing, because you're right. We could have gone anywhere. Um, we could have moved to Berlin. We could have moved to Madrid because with an Irish passport, you know, we're Europeans, so you can go anywhere. Uh, you know, the, it's funny because what I knew was that I would probably work in London a lot. And so I kind of wanted to move to London, but Hugo uh, doesn't like London. And we both speak French fluently. My son had been raised speaking French. Um, uh, he went to French schools in Brooklyn. We wanted to have a second, a second language. And um, we spent a lot of time in Paris, but we spent a lot of time in a lot of places. And uh, so we just thought, oh, France, not Paris. So we just thought, and we were in, we were in Paris maybe the Christmas before, and it feels a lot like New York, you know, I mean, the Parisians are as unfriendly as New Yorkers can be, you know, Paris is cold and rainy, it's a fast walking city, you've got to get off the sidewalk or you get run over, um, it's not a particularly friendly and warm city, but I'm used to that, so, you know, I didn't have any problem fitting in, and, um, you know, uh, it, it was actually a fairly easy transition, all in all, uh, uh, the language was easy for us, uh, fairly easy, you have to navigate weird things like banking and all the government stuff, but that happens no matter where you go. I mean, that happens if you go from California to New York, you got to figure out banking and gym and all this. So we had to figure out all this stuff out, um, you know, and um, ironically, of course, I am in London probably more than I'm in Paris uh, and we're, we go back and forth a lot. But the thing about being in Europe is that you can go anywhere. Like you said, Croatia, we drove to Croatia last summer. We drove through Milan and then on to Croatia. And then on the way back, we drove through Rome and stopped off and saw friends. Um, we went to Amsterdam because we were going to go to, um, uh, not Cyprus, um, Sardinia. And the weather was looking bad. So we were like, well, if it's going to rain, let's go to Amsterdam. So we went to Amsterdam. We had friends there. We hung out with them. It's, a, it's a crazy to be in Europe because everything is just right there. You know, Spain is is an hour and a half away by, by plane or you can drive, you know, in seven hours. It's, it's really interesting. Now, how did your agent react? <laughs> he went, ugh, ugh, oi, ugh. Okay, really? All right. You know, I mean, it's, it's like you're it's setting up a nightmare for somebody. Um, I'll tell you a funny story. So having already moved to Paris, I was sending out Christmas cards and whatever, and a producer friend of mine, um, Dante, got a thing for me, and he pinged me back, and he went, so you're in Paris. And I went, yeah. 
He went, so, I mean, if someone, someone wanted to hire you, what would they do? And I said, you would buy me a plane ticket and I would get on the plane and I would fly and I would land and I would work. Just like when I'm in New York, I flew to LA, it's five hours. When I'm in Paris, it's seven hours. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not that different. It's just, it's hard to get, you know, people's mind around the fact that even though you're not there, you're still there. Um, and, you know, conversely, I suddenly working more in London because people in London are thinking, oh, this guy's right there. He's not, he's not far away. Um, but, you know, my agent's been amazing. Um, he, my agent's name, Gary Gersh, he's just amazing. And he rolls with the punches and he's figured it out and um, he supported me the whole way. And, you know, because of COVID, oddly enough, um, I talked to him more, I think, because otherwise I would go into the office. But now because of COVID, nobody can go in the office. So, you know, I, I talked to him on the phone, which is amazing. Now, as an actor, it helps because you're established being over there. But I'm sure that you probably 95% get offers. I guess I'm, I'm guessing at your stage of career, you really don't have to audition. But the good thing is if you did have to audition, the tape process must be great for you because you wouldn't be able to get into the rooms in yeah. America. You know, it's funny. I, I, I do get a lot of offers, but I also do be, I'm asked to audition for things. And, you know, I'm not precious about it because for me, if somebody wants me to prove that I can do a part, I'm fine with that. Because if I can't prove it to them, then the part wasn't mine. You know, if I can't make the case that you should hire me, then then you shouldn't hire me. So I have no problem, you know, putting myself on tape or whatever. Um, I think also again during COVID, it sort of broke the back of the casting process in many many ways, and I feel bad for the casting directors in that way, because everybody had to go on tape. So even if you were in New York City, you were going on tape. If you were in LA, you're going on tape. Everybody, all actors now have become you know, producers, editors, sound engineers, you know, email experts, we transfer experts, Dropbox experts, you have to be. So, um, yeah, I do. I, I'll go on tape. It's funny. I had two auditions recently. Um, one was for a TV series, which I didn't get, but they wanted me to be German. Um, and it shot in Germany. I was like, sure, I can, I can be German, but you could also hire a German guy, by the way. <laughs> Because a lot of them speak English, so I hired a German guy, and then I had to audition for a part, you know, that for an English a guy who had an English accent, and I've done English accents before. But again, it's like hiring hiring hire Mark Rylance, hire an English guy because they're they're good. So you don't need me to do. I'll do an English accent absolutely, but hire an English guy. Um, but you know, in that case, they wanted to see if I could do the accent if I was going to be believable at it. And you know, a lot of people are confused about who I am because. I'm living in Paris, and they kind of go, oh, I thought he was American. And I have an Irish passport. They go, oh, I guess he's Irish. Oh, yeah, I can hear he's Irish. Yeah, he does a really good American accent, but I can hear the Irish bleeding through, you know. It's, it's very weird. So if I have to prove myself, I'll prove myself. You know? Now, which do you prefer? I talked to a lot of actors, and it seems like everyone who's been in the business for a long time and has been working, like you and all these guys that have had a track record, seem to, they really love the room. And they miss the room. Do you think that's because of the, the fear of technology or it's just something that you're you're so comfortable just walking in? And plus, you're, you've done so much stage work, you know how to yeah. command a room. I mean, what, what are your feelings on both processes? I don't get jobs on tape. I get jobs in a room. If I walk into a room, I'm usually going to book a job. If I'm on tape, you know, it's sort of like being, you know, uh, a cobra. In the room, I can I can hypnotize you. You know what I mean? I can like I can do my thing, and I can make you watch me, and I can talk you into hiring me. On tape, I can't do that. On tape, you can be looking at your phone, you can be distracted, you can pause me, you can the sound. You know, it's it's a different thing. It's a different animal. And I do think there's something about being a human being, walking into seeing another human being, whatever that is. You know smell taste sense i don't know what it is there is a qualitative difference in physically being with people whether it's something as simple as i don't know shaking their hand or or looking them in the eye or, or something you, you, we all read differently i think in person and i think i think that's been for me uh, a, a problem i i'd rather i'd rather be in a room with people i really would now when did your career start? I always, I love when I talk to people, you know, I just talked to a musician last night 
who, you know, for them, the defining moment was seeing the Beatles. You know, then they said, everyone got a guitar. Everyone did that. It was a different time. For you, I read something where you started, you were on stage when you were eight playing an instrument, or when, when did you, what, when did your career start? What, what got you into this love of acting, arts, music, music? What got yeah. you into it? My mom, my mom was a, um, a, a musician and a church organist. My uncle was a violinist for the Detroit Symphony. My aunt was a cellist. My grandmother was a cellist. Um, I was raised with music. I learned how to read music before I learned how to read words and language. So I was playing piano and organ when I was five years old. Um, and so I kind of got into that way. I played church organ when I was eight. I, had, I played for masses during school. Um, I played with my mom on the altar when I was about eight or nine. I played guitar masses and all this stuff. You know, So I came in through music. And um, I was singing in a Bach choir when I was 12. And then I got into, you know, choir. And then I got into musicals because that's, you know, musical and musical and acting. And I did all the musicals in high school. And then when I think I was 16, there's a great place called Cranbrook Institute, which is in Detroit. I'm from Detroit. And um, it's a it's an arts colony, school, something. And they had a summer theater program. And I was exposed to Stanislavski and ballet and like, you know, straight theater and, you know, doing heavy stuff. And I just loved it. And so when I went to school, I went, I actually auditioned for the opera department at university of Michigan because I was a singer, opera singer. And I got in and I auditioned for uh, Northwestern university for acting. And I just kind of arbitrarily spoke, took Northwestern because it was six hours away from my house and at 18, I didn't want to be 45 minutes away from my parents. I wanted to be six <laughs> hours away from my parents. So it's, it was that random. Had I gone to University of Michigan, I don't know. Maybe I would have ended up in music. Um, but I, I went to Northwestern, and I ended up getting a great acting teacher. Um, you know, I, I do think we are predestined in a weird way by, you know, whatever talent is. I don't know what talent is. talent inborn? I don't know. But I, I know that, you know, because of my mother and her side of the family, I was primed to be a musician and on some level, uh, be in the arts on some level. It was acceptable to be in the arts. That was not a weird thing for my family. No one was, it wasn't foreign. And they supported me. And, um, and I loved it. I mean, when I was 10, I wanted to buy a harpsichord kit and build a harpsichord. That was my idea of fun. That's what I would do. I used to play recorder duets with my best friend in the parking lot. I mean, that's like, that's what I was doing as a kid. You know what I mean? Um, so I sort of was cut out for this. I was going to end up somehow in the arts. There's just no two ways about it. Um, ironically, in college, I was a poetry major. So I sort of like messed up my theater career and ended up just doing poetry for about two years. And then I panicked and went back to theater and finished out my theater degree and got a, a degree in theater. But I continued to write my entire life and um, I've written a screenplay, I've written two plays, I'm writing my third play and I'm writing a novel, which is now 800 pages and out of control. And I'm trying to you know, hack it back to some sort of, you know, manageable level. Now, when you get out of Northwestern, what what is your goal? I mean, you know, a lot of times people, when they graduate college with a degree, they are all about theater. And it usually comes yeah. in later when people go, well, there's not a lot of money in theater. Uh, yeah. So, but what was, did you leave Chicago right away? Because I know there's also stuff going on in Chicago with improv and things like that. But what was, what was your goal when you walked, when you got that degree and they said, okay, Dennis, you know, what did you sit there and go, holy shit, what am I going to do now? Or what path did you take? Yeah, no, I pretty, pretty much. I mean, you know, I, I, I took, I mean, I, it's funny. I, I was a waiter, obviously, you know, I was a waiter and a bartender and I, that's how I made my living. And I was a waiter and a bartender in Chicago for years. That's what I did. And I did theater on the side. Um, you know, there was a period about a year after graduation where I tried to quit the business and I was like, forget it. I'm not going to be an actor. It's stupid. I'm going to be a poet. I'm going to be a writer. And I was writing a lot with friends and we had a, we had a literary salon. We put on bizarre performances. I mean, we really did this stuff. We had like a weird um, performance art salon one day, but John Logan, who's a great writer and a friend of mine. And I went to school with John and did, I did two of his plays during Northwestern. He written a play called Hauptmann about the Brunner Richard Hauptmann. And he wanted me to do a reading of it or do it. And I said, no, I'm not right for the part. 
I saw my acting teacher do it. I'm not big enough. I'm not old enough. I'm not right for the part. And they came back to me and said, look, idiot, if you don't say yes to this, we're moving on, okay? And something in me went, don't blow this. And so I said yes to it and did that play. And it was sort of a, a blo- it opened me up. It was a blossoming thing. It sort of put me on the map in Chicago in a different way. It's a great play. We did it, you know, we ended up doing it at the Edinburgh Festival in Scotland. We did it again at Victory Gardens in Chicago. Um, but, you know, I really was a journeyman actor in Chicago. I was non-equity for a long time, and I just worked my ass off. And I did lots and lots of plays, and I got paid nothing. And I bartended and waited tables. And, you know, did I have a goal? I guess my goal was to just keep acting because I loved doing it. And just and whoever would let me act, I would act. I didn't care if they paid me or not. And then ultimately, I got I turned Union. I, I joined Union at Wisdom Bridge Theater. Um, I think I was about 27. I got my card and uh, and then didn't work for a year because who wanted to hire me because I was a new kid who was Union. But just kept chipping away at it and ultimately uh, did this play again, Hauptmann, which transferred to New York. And we did it off-Broadway in New York where it promptly failed and uh, it didn't didn't transfer at all. It didn't, didn't work. And I stayed in New York. I was like, forget it. I'm not coming back to Chicago. This is my chance. I'm staying in New York. Now, when you get to New York, I mean... It has to be a little bit scary just for the fact that, you know, you've done you've done a lot of work and you're not, as you said, you know, you're not making money. You're doing this. And it's like anything. I sure after a while, people get frustrated. I did stand up comedy on the road from 88 to 94. And when you started out, you know, you'd be angry when you're like, well, how'd that guy get work? He sucks. And you didn't want to be. But you're young and you were, you know, and you would go through peaks and valleys of, you know, Am I doing the right thing? How did you keep your head focused when you got to New York in those early days? Because now you're coming to a, a whole new big city. Yeah. I don't know. That's a really good question. I, you know, I never really doubted that this is what I wanted to do. And I never really doubted that it would eventually work. You know, and, but, but, but I have to tell you, when I moved to New York in 1992, I did not work for six months. I mean, nothing. And I auditioned every single day. I remember I learned what the meaning of the word pounding the pavement was. I went out and I literally pounded the pavement. Voiceover auditions, on-camera auditions for TV commercials, theater auditions, film auditions, TV auditions, everything. I just kept going at it, going at it, going at it, going at it, and got nothing. And then I got a play. Joanne Acolytus hired me at the public to play the doctor in a play uh, called Wojtek. And um, she made me shave my head, and it was this crazy production, and I did that crazy production. I just kept doing plays. I mean, I did a bunch of plays in the public, a bunch of plays in New York Theater Workshop. I eventually got to work at the Roundabout, um, you know, and I made my Broadway debut in 94. So two years after being there, I finally made my Broadway debut. But, uh, you know, I, I just worked, 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 worked. And it's funny, to get back to our earlier question, you know, I think my goal early was to do theater no matter what. And then my goal was to do theater and get paid for it. And then my goal was to do theater and get paid enough I can quit my temp job. And then my goal was to do theater and get paid enough that I'm not scared. And then my goal was to be a really respected regional theater actor. I wanted to work in all the regional theaters. And then my goal was to be a really respected off-Broadway actor. And then my goal was to be a really respected working Broadway actor. You know, so you're always, it's not that you're not satisfied, but it's that when you achieve something, you kind of go, oh, this is great. Oh, but, oh, I, there's another goal I want to try to go to. And it's a healthy thing. You know, I, th- I think as long as you are enjoying what you're doing and not unhappy. And I, I was never really unhappy. I just always kind of was looking and going, oh, I want to do that, too. I'd love to do that, too. You know, same thing with movies and TV. I wanted to I wanted to play in that sandbox. I was like, oh, I want to do TV because you can do different things in TV. I want to do movies because you can act differently in a movie, you know. You can have a different, a different skill set. Now tell me about that, the first time you, opening night on your first Broadway play. What is that like for an actor? That's got to be like for a minor league ball player who goes and gets, you know, goes into Yankee Stadium. Or, you know, someone like I know comics who when they got the Tonight Show, you know, back when it was Carson, their whole career changed. What was it like, you know, for you? Because one, you, you were 30, 31. I mean, it's not like you were some young yeah. guy. You've been, you've been a journeyman. Yeah, you were working. Yeah, too. What yeah. was it? What was it like? Like that first night? What play was it? And, and tell me about it. It's called Racing Demon, a play by David Hare, uh, at Lincoln Center Theater. 
Um, Paul Giamatti was in it. Uh, Joseph Summers, uh, Michael Kumpstey, Catherine Meisley. Um, God, who else? Brian Murray, uh, a great cast, and um, Kathleen Chalfant, and um, directed by Richard Eyre, who used to run the National Theatre in London. And, um, you know, it's funny because in New York and a lot of places, opening night is weird because the critics have already come. So the critics come, like, the, the starting, like, the week before you open, where you're deep in previews, they come, like, you're going to open on a Friday, so they come the Monday. They come the Sunday matinee, then the Tuesday, the Wednesday matinee, the Wednesday and the Thursday. And you're always like, when is the Times coming? Is, is the Times? And you don't want to know, but you want to know. You know. And you can kind of feel it because suddenly the producers are backstage going, how are you feeling? You feeling good? How are you doing? You doing good? How are you doing? You go, oh, the, the Times is in. Okay, great. Um, but then opening night is mad because it's like – gifts and parties and flowers and cookies and everyone's running around like you know this height night night thing and you're trying to focus on your show and then you know you do the show and then you come down and then it's just about waiting for the review are we going to be dead is is is, am i is my career over will i be that mention where they kind of go the production is stellar one sour note however is dennis (laughs) o'hare who arrives with a you know, so you're waiting for that thing. You, or opposite, you're kind of like, um, the production is good. However, newcomer Dennis O'Hare really lights up the stage. You just, you, you can't help but live in that place. Um, uh, you know, but funnily enough, so opening night of my play, Racing Demon, I fell on my face. I fell on my face. Literally or figuratively? On my face. I fell on my face. Um, you know, they, I mean, and of course, the critics had already come, so they didn't see that. But everybody else saw it, all my friends and family, my agents. You know, I, I had a really kind of like crazy entrance where I ran up these steps and jumped, and I was wearing a Walkman. I was playing this Scottish Glaswegian character named Ewan and sort of like rocking out, you know what I mean, and listening to my thing and, and spinning around and dancing. And I always thought, don't fall, don't fall. Every night, don't fall, don't fall, don't fall. And I fell, I mean, on my face. And there was no covering it, and the audience went, <gasps> There's nothing to do about it. And so I laid on the ground and I laughed and I rolled around and I kept my Walkman on and I rolled around and I laughed. And I just, what are you, you going to do? <laughs> you know what I mean? So that was my opening night experience on Broadway. So so after that play, when do you start getting bigger roles? Because, you know, you've won a Tony. And when does yeah. that all start happening? Was, was, it, was it that role that led you to a springboard or was that just like you said, your goal was to get on Broadway? And then was that just yeah. a stepping stone? And then you had to go a few more until you get to that part where you can win a Tony. What catapulted you into your, you know, stardom in on Broadway? It's funny. I was never really the kind of actor who, I was never looking for that. I mean, yes, I wanted the Tony. Yeah, it was great. But that was never my goal. I sort of was always attracted to the part in front of me. So what would happen is, you know, I would, I got a call from Martha Clark, who's a, a, a kind of an avant-garde choreographer. And she said, you don't know me and you're not a dancer, but I'm doing a really weird play about Vienna and it's text. It's like kind of psychological and you'd be an actor. And I was like, yes, absolutely. Weird. C- call me up. I love doing unusual things. And I love that play. You know, it was a weird play with half dancers and half actors. And I think I, and I also did at that point a play called Helen, directed by Tony Kushner, but um, by Ellen McLaughlin, which was not a success, but I loved doing that play. And then um, I did Romeo and Juliet in, in Baltimore with Michael Hall, Michael C. Hall, and a friend of mine named Kali Roshi, who I became best friends with. I did a four-hour play called The Devils at New York Theatre Workshop with 16 actors. The critics hated it. People couldn't wait to get out of that theater. I loved it. We all loved each other. We had the best time. I did a play called Sinus County Exile at the um, Public, Liz Marvel's first play, um, uh, uh, with a lovely actor, um, uh, just lovely actor, Mark Wing Davies, a British director. Uh, Just, you know, but I just went from play to play to play based on what I loved. Or I had an audition and they wanted me. But there was no plan. I had no plan other than just what's next, you know, and there was no, there was no path. There was no, you know, nothing. And um, I guess, you know, my, my first break into the big leagues that way was cabaret. And um, I remember I had an audition for cabaret um, for Sam Mendes and, you know, I'm a, I'm a good singer, but I'm not like a Broadway singer. I, I just, I don't have that 
kind of ego. And so I get really scared to sing. And so I went in and I said, they wanted me to sing a song. And so I sang this weird song called the nervous song. So I could be nervous while I was singing it. And I sang and I kind of hid behind the piano while I was doing it, you know, and they were charmed and they were like, try. And I did the acting thing and they liked it. And um, he called me back and um, he hired me for the Nazi, Ernst Ludwig, the Nazi in, in cabaret. And I did that for a year and a half. I did that with Natasha Richardson and Alan Cumming and later Jennifer Jason Lee. And that sort of like puts you in a different le- level. You know what I mean? It puts you in a different world. People are going, who is this guy? Where did he come from? Um, you know, and jobs, jobs lead to jobs, you know, and you have wrong foots and detours along the way. But, and again, for me, it was always just about what's next in front of me, meaning what do I want to do? Not where am I even headed, you know? And oddly enough, take me out that play. They offered me, the workshop and I said no it's not my part I don't see myself in this part and they were like well you should give it a shot did the reading it went really really well but I was still like that's not my part and then they came back and they wanted to do a production of it and I hesitated I was like I don't think it's my part and Joe Mantello directing was like you know yes don't be an idiot you were fine so we did the play and we did the play in London and somewhere in doing it in London I suddenly went oh this is going really well. And I think I'm doing really well. And I think people are liking it. And I had this weird feeling. I was 40. And I thought, this is kind of my last chance. I'm 40. And this is a big part. And it's a big break. And if I kind of don't make it on this, I think I'm going to be kind of like, and it was a weird feeling. And I don't know where it came from. And as it turns out, we got great reviews in New York, in London, and uh, I, I got nice notices. Um, I don't read them, uh, people tell me. And then we moved to New York, and it kind of became this hit at the public. And then we moved to Broadway, and it became this hit on Broadway. And then, you know, the Tony thing happened. But it was all sort of just like, I didn't plan it. I never planned it. <laughs> it wasn't mine. What is it like when you win a Tony? Because that's like, you know, that's... Huge. I mean, you know, you, yeah. you sit there, you, when you talk to people, and it's so funny because when I talk to actors, you know, for me, I'm like, it's huge. And a lot of times, it's like when you talk to actors and they say, oh, I got a pilot. I've had so many pilots that failed. I'm like, yeah, but you had a pilot. That's so big. Right. You know, right. somebody you did didn't that. want that. But for Tony, I mean, that's like, there's the community saying, you're the best. What is that like? I mean, do you get a little bit cocky? Like, oh, yeah, I got a Tony. Or are you like, holy crap, I can't believe they thought I got a Tony. What was your reaction when you got that? I mean, you know, the the reaction to getting nominated was sort of like, oh, my God, now it's mine to lose. Great. I'm I'm going to now not get the Tony, and it was it's mine. And I'm going to fumble. I'm going to fumble on the, you know, on the, on the five-yard line. Uh, I was up against Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um, and uh, Daniel Sanjata was my co-star. Um, I think Michael K. Friedman, I think, and maybe Robert Sean Leonard. I can't remember, but you know, there's a sense of, and then and my and it was my parents' 50th anniversary, and they came into New York, and so they came in. My whole family came in. I was like, I had so much pressure on me to win. It wasn't even the joy of winning. It was like I have to win. My entire family came in. If I don't win, it's going to be the worst evening ever. It's going to be the worst weekend ever. It's going to be awful. So great relief, great relief at winning, (laughs) you know, a little bit of sort of like, I always feel a little bad for the guy I beat because I'm like, Phil Hoffman's a great actor. You know, I feel a little bad about that. Daniel Sanjata, my acting partner in this play, I feel bad about, you know, he didn't get it, Um, but I'm happy I got it. And the thing you feel is now what? Is this going to change me? What's going to happen? You know, and excitement about that, you know, maybe fear about, oh, my God, what's going to happen? Am I going to be whisked away? You know, and in my case, I'm a 40 year old character actor. So that didn't happen. Um, But what did happen was you're known. Suddenly your name is known in a different way. You know, unbeknownst to me in the audience at Take Me Out on any given night is that director who's going to hire me 10 years down the road, you know, is Ryan Murphy, who's watching a show and going, oh, who's that? You know, is Spielberg who's watching a show and going, oh, who's that? You know, it's so you, you never know once you get that spotlight on you, who's thinking about you and how far in the future that's going to pay out. Um, 
it, you know, it, it, it gives you a little bit of a trademark after your name, a little TM, which you can, you know, parlay into something. Um, you know, it, it was it was very, very nice. Believe me, it was very, very nice. And, and my, my career was sort of already established and it just solidified things for me. Now, when do you decide you're going to transition to TV and movies? Was that a natural progression or is it something that you said, you know, I mean, when you when you're on stage and you're acting, you guys are doing shows every night, and it's not like yeah. you don't get to go to your trailer and kick back. You know, you get to get 15 different takes or different camera angles, and I'm sure you know after a while, being a stage actor after years must be a little bit exhausting because you're yeah. you're going through your body every night, and even the nerves. I mean, I don't care what you say, you still get that antsiness before you go on stage. When did you decide to say, you know what, I'm going to start? I want to transition over to TV or movies, or did they come to you? It's funny, you know, again, for a lot of actors, I know a lot of my friends are this way. It's sort of an organic process that, again, I I didn't control and I didn't plan. Um, You know, I think for me, for instance, I did did the anniversary party with Jennifer Jason Lee and Alan Cumming because I had done cabaret with them. And they came to me and said, we wrote a part for you in our movie. And I was like, oh, my God, how cool. Um, I did Garden State on one morning before Matt may have taken me out, you know, because Zach Braff knew me from college and, and wanted to hire me. And I, it was great to do that. You know, and I'd always been doing TV. I did law and order. I mean, you know, I'm a New York actor, so I did law and order. I was very happy to do that. And little, little gigs here and there, but my bread and butter is still theater. That's what I'm doing. I'm a theater actor. And then I think it was, I guess it started around 2006. I started getting more films and I started getting more things like that. And I was more interested in getting those kinds of things. And then 2008, I got True Blood. And that sort of was a whole different thing. You know, that it, it was for a year. You know, I, I was a regular, so I had to commit to the entire year. And then um, it was in L.A. running around there. And once you do that, you're kind of like, oh, I think I want to do that again. Um, and... Uh, it's harder to get in fit in theater because also your agents don't want you to do theater anymore. Your agents are like, well, if you take that play, you're not available for pilot season. If you take that play, you can't do a movie. And so it's always a sort of a balance. And, you know, it wasn't that I was tired of doing theater. It was that I wanted to do film and TV. I was excited about what those things could teach me, what, what characters I could play, what experiences I could have. And, I still feel that way. You know, I, I, I did, um, I did into the woods in 2012 musical central park. I did Tartuffe at the national in 2019 in London. I do a one man show called an Iliad. It's a one hour and a half, one man show, which I've done for years, which I did in Shanghai last time. And then I did it in Paris and I was going to do it in Romania this year. But so I do that, that keep that in my body and I keep that going. Um, but you know, for most of us, I think the idea of doing a year or six months on Broadway is a big ask. And it's, a, as you say, it's a grueling thing. It's hard to do, but it's also, if you have a family, it's like, you know, I've got a 10 year old boy. That's a, that's a, I'm not going to go to New York and do a play because I can't be away from him that long. I'll do TV because I can go for two weeks and come back. But when you think a play, you, you can't pull out. And so a lot of my considerations are about my family. You know, I can't, I can't not be with them. And so I think a lot of actors end up doing that, making that decision based on family. You know, you, you get a family and you can't. Now tell me about True Blood, because, you know, True Blood's one of the shows that, and anything with vampires, I know you did American Horror Stories, a bunch of them. Yeah. They have, like, devout followers. It's like you think about sure. like, Star Trek has devout followers. Like, people know, they see you, they then they go find all your work. True Blood had a really big following and now at that time vampires were huge there was a point where i mean vampires were like the rage yeah. how did you get the part in true blood and how did it change your career somewhat because i'm sure a hit show on hbo must give you also some cred because hbo is hbo it's not yeah you know tbs sitcom you know what i mean yeah totally funnily enough so i was in budapest doing a film called the eagle of the ninth uh, with Channing Tatum and Janie Bell, um, Kevin McDonald directed it, having a great time. And I, I remember very clearly, I was, I remember where I was, I got a phone call from my agent, Gary Gersh, who said, um, where are you? What are you doing? I was like, I'm outside. I went and got some dinner. And he goes, 
okay, let me ask you a question. How would you feel about playing the Vampire King of Mississippi in the hit show called True Blood on HBO? I was like, um, what? Okay, yeah, that, that sounds really cool. And I had been watching True Blood, and I'd never imagined myself in that show. I'd never imagined me being part of it. And so the backstory to all that is that an agent who I didn't know, um, I think David Rose, in L.A., was my agency in L.A., sort of was like looking at the client list and whatever, and hadn't met me, and was like, Dennis O'Hare should be in True Blood. I know they're looking at other people, but he, he should be in True Blood. He called up Alan Ball, and he went, you need to hire Dennis O'Hare, and you better hurry, because he's, he's on other things, and you're going to lose him. And they were like, uh, and they did. They made the offer. <laughs> it was like good agents, you know what I mean? Good agenting can make a huge difference in your career. And, um, you know, as you say, being on a hit show on HBO makes a difference. But what it also does is it, if you do well, if you don't flame out and if you're not a pain in the ass and they fire you and they hate you, but if you do well, it signals to other people in the industry, oh, he is a good bet. He's somebody that we can hire and he will deliver and he's a good use of our time and money. You know, I've done, I've done three shows for HBO. I did the Nevers. I'm doing the Nevers right now. If I just finished shooting it. And, um, uh, I did big little lies season two. Um, I did the normal heart for HBO. You know, they, they like you. They, they, these are people and all those people who work there, executives and producers and casting directors are people. And they have taste, and they and they like you, and they will hire you again. Um, but you know, it, it is getting into those worlds where it's not just an audition; it's actually them seeing you multiple times that lets them get used to who you are, and then wanting to work with you again. Now, going back on your career, you know, after you left theater and started doing TV, I always like to find out how actors act at the first time on set when they're when they're it's not theater. So it's, yeah. you know, how, do you remember the experience? Because I know some people will go, holy crap, I didn't, I didn't even know to look into the camera. I didn't know, wait, to step on a mark, I have a mark on a play, but I can go away from it. What was, do you yeah. remember the first experience you had? And was it a little nerve wracking? It was really nerve wracking. Again, my, I was hired by David Hare, oddly enough, before I worked, before I did Racing Demons. So 1992, I was hired by him to do the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Um, Sean Flannery, Patrick Flannery is the star of that and it was shooting in Prague and it was more money than I ever made in my life it wasn't that much money but it was more <laughs> money than I ever made in life like how much? oh my god and they hired me because I had a shaved head and I had a look like this I had a shaved head because of doing Wojciech at the public and they liked the look and they were like that's cool we want to hire you so I did an audition sight unseen I was playing a diplomat during the Treaty of Versailles and I was terrified. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. Why did you hire me? I, I didn't get to audition. I didn't get to prove it. How, what if you don't like me? What if I show up and you go, cut, what are you doing? I was terrified. And so I um, show up in Prague, you know, like hanging out in, in the hotel and waiting to work. And I finally get there. And I remember I was doing, you know, I, I, and I did fine. Um, in the two-person scenes or whatever. But I remember I was doing a scene in a courtroom or a big room and the camera was facing me and there were other people here and I froze because I didn't want to move because I didn't want to upstage anybody. So I thought, I don't have any lines and that guy's talking, so I better not move. So I, everyone looks at me because I'm the guy on screen going like this. You know, that's not, and no one, no one helped me. No one said to me, Dennis, Dennis, we'll edit around you. You can do whatever you want to believe. If the camera doesn't want to see you, we won't see you. We're going to do lots of takes. You'll be in some, you won't be. A, so when you watch it, you see this one guy going like literally frozen. Cause I was afraid to move. I didn't want to cause anybody to look at me. So of course it's like, anyway, they didn't fire me. Um, I definitely learned a lot on that show and, um, you know, every subsequent thing I did on, on TV, you learn, you learn the politics of the set, you learn, you know, but I think one of the most valuable things I learned was that I can work with no sleep. My entire experience as a TV actor is I'm always tired. 
I'm always getting up at four in the morning and going to do makeup. I'm always tired. I'm just always tired. And you can do it. You can actually do it with no sleep. Now, tell me about the proposal, because that, that was lighthearted. And you, your whole career, you've had so many, like, intense roles, and you're an actor, you're like, with American Horror Story. And then the proposal is just, like, a fun fun movie. I mean, Betty White's in it. And just, it's, you know, tell me about how that part come apart, and what was it like, you know, the scenes you did, because it seemed like it probably was a step outside of what you're used to. Well, I mean, it's funny. I do, I do a lot of comedy, and I've always done a lot of comedy. And it's funny, if, I, if I've done a comedy then nobody wants to hire me for a heavy role. They kind of go, oh, he's a funny guy. And if I do heavy roles, they're kind of like, yeah, but he can't be funny. Um, so it, it is it is ironic. That I auditioned for, um, Ann Fletcher, who I adore, the director. And um, I think my sweater got me the part because I remember I remember thinking, this guy has to wear a cardigan. And I wore just the right cardigan. And, um, and I auditioned for the part. She loved me. I loved her. And that was a joy. That whole thing was a joy. Uh, you know, what was great about it, too, was that Anne gave us a lot of leeway. So we did not a lot of improv everywhere, but, you know, here and there. And, for instance, the the end sequence, the title sequence at the very, very end, which is a long sequence, is entirely improvised. Everything. And not one word is written. It's just us, the actress, sitting in a room and me acting like I'm, I'm, I'm asking them weird questions about why I want to be an American citizen. Uh, but, you know, um, Oscar Nunez, I became good friends with, who I adore. Um, Sandra Bullock is, is an amazing person to work with. Ryan Reynolds was a joy. Um, Betty White, of course, my God, what an honor to be with her and to be hanging out with her. Mary Steenburgen. Um, it was really, really a, a, a great experience. And, and Craig T. Nelson. And uh, But, you know, it's funny because that character is funny because you laugh at him in a certain way. He's not happy. He's pretty buttoned down he's on a mission to you know bring this person down and he fails and that's what makes it funny is situations are conspiring against him but he's not in himself funny and it it is a source of comedy that i i love is is it's a source of farce comedy you're not playing it for laughs you're playing it deadly serious and that's what makes it funny now you mentioned Ryan Murphy earlier. How did your relationship start with him? Because, man, you work for him a lot. And uh, how did that all happen? And is it, and I'll ask you a question later, but it must be an honor, but weird to come back and play a completely different role in a completely different series. Because, you know, people who watch a lot of TV don't sit there. Some people get freaked out if it's, it's you know, it's a different person or a different role. But how did you and uh, Ryan start working together? You know, it was the pilot, American Horror Story, um, Murder House, and uh, Ryan called my agent and asked my agent if I would look at the script. And um, I, it was sort of out of the blue. And again, it's one of those things where he had seen me, I think it'd take me out and maybe a different play. And, you know, people like Ryan are, are so creative and they, they keep people in their brain and sort of like think about when the right thing comes along, that person will be good for it. And so the right thing came along and he thought of me and um, I read the script and I love the character because I love monsters. I love the character. And, um, and I was on board. I was just, you know, on board. And he directed a lot of the, uh, a lot of the pilot and uh, a lot of the first season rather and the pilot. And, you know, I, I love him because he doesn't waste a lot of time and language he gives you short, quick bursts. He gives very, very good direction and sets you on a really good path. And I just love the world he comes up with. I love the challenges he comes up with. You know, I mean, he, he, I played a butler whose tongue was cut out. He didn't speak. I played a con man who was like a smooth talker who whistled. I played a transgender character who had a shaved head and wore massive high heels. I mean, I'm, no one else is going to give me those parts it stretches you in a really great way. And then you're playing with the same people from season to season, Kathy Bates, Jessica Lange, Sarah Paulson, Evan Peters, Franny Conroy, um, Lily Rabe. And so you have this great depth of experience with each other that allows you to, I don't know, trust, challenge, push. It's such a great experience. It's just such a wonderful way to make things. Now, how does that go about though? You do the first season, and then you're out doing your stuff, and it's. I mean, you didn't say if you did a first season, 
hey, yeah, you know, down down season three, I might have you back, you know, because you never know how long a show is going to last. But how is that as an actor? Like, you get this first season, and you love it, and he's great to work yeah. with. And you're probably going, I would love to work with him again, but you never know. And then when did you get the call for the next one, and did you already have stuff booked? Or, I mean, how does, how does that work as an yeah. actor? Well, you kind of want to wait, but at the same time, you can't wait. And as it turns out, I, I had a job that interfered, and so I couldn't do season two, um, which I regretted. Um, uh, and uh, and then they came back to me for season three, um, and I jumped at the chance. I was like, absolutely, I, I'll be in. I'll do it. Um, you know, and it's, 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 it's sort of you can't expect anything in this business. You just can't expect anything. So you don't. So you take what's in front of you. You enjoy it, you live for it, and then you move on. You know what I mean? You don't, you don't, characters die, they get killed off, they come back, they don't come back, you know? Um, you know, and I, I believe these relationships, though, always continue. And so my, my motto is, know your lines, arrive early, do all the work, don't complain, they'll hire you again. Now, when you came back with the uh, transgender, when you were bald, as was Batel, yeah. I believe, Liz Taylor. Did did he call you first and say, "Hey, man, I got a really good role for you," or was it just as soon as he called, you were in? You didn't care what it was. Like as soon as your agent called and said, "Ryan wants you," and you were probably like, "I, you know what? I'll dress up as a porpoise. I don't care." Like, I mean, what what is yeah, it like when he calls? Pretty much, you? pretty much whatever he whatever he wants, I'll do. Um, it, that one was an email, and I think he just said, um, "You're playing Liz Taylor, uh, Cleopatra, I bald head, gorgeous." That was it. That was it. Now, that was it. You know, I mean, that was it. I didn't know is it, is it is it a drag queen? Is it somebody who has a male persona? Is I don't know what's happening. And you know, when I went when I arrived in L.A. Um, for fittings, the costume designer Lou Eirich and I started playing around with clothes and high heels and things. And it was during that fitting that I said, you know, I want to do a little thing for Ryan. And so with my shaved head and things, I did a little weird kind of like dance for him. You know, did a thing for the character, and that helped him kind of go. Oh, I see where he's at. He's in the right place. And then you know, it's a push me pull you. They write, we react, we do our thing. They write in reaction to that. But that character was a complete evolution. I don't think any of us necessarily knew where she was going. And I think the fact that she was transgender wasn't obvious at the beginning to anybody, and that became apparent as we went along. Now, you're also in a few episodes of The Good Wife, and I've yeah. talked to people. People who've worked on The Good Wife said the writing is so good and the yeah. directing is Thanks. so good and the cast is so good that they say you go in there, it's a well-oiled machine, and it's just awesome. Now, you played a judge, which is so funny because you've played so many different characters, crazy characters like that, and then you're playing yeah. a judge. You've played a judge a few times in your career. But what was it like going on to a set like that when you've heard good things? It was funny. I did the second episode episode after the pilot, and that was one of those ones where they weren't going to hire me because they wanted this character to be funny. And I was like, I could do that. And they were like, But then this is so heavy. And my agent was like, I think he can do it. And as it turned out, you know, Abernathy is a very quirky, funny character and, and a great character. Um, you know what? So it, it really hadn't been established yet. It didn't really have a reputation. So I I was luckily spared that sort of, you know, expectation. I didn't know what I was getting into. I just know they wanted me to play a judge. Because um, uh, in True Blood, actually, I did have the fear of failing because I had been watching it, and it was already a hit. Whereas The Good Wife, it was only the second episode, and so it hadn't really aired yet. Um, uh, I love The Good Wife. I love Juliana Margulies, Christine Baranski, all of them. Josh Charles, I had the best time with them. Um, and like you said, the writing is so good. And the writing is tough and challenging. And what I loved about what they do is that they take topics and they really, really turn them inside out. But they don't do the obvious thing. They don't land in the obvious place politically. Like my character, who's this incredibly liberal judge, almost never ruled in the way you thought he would rule. He ruled against his own beliefs because that's what the law told him to do. Now, what's it like as, you know, you've been, I mean, you look at your IMDb, which I love, I love looking at IMDb's because you see the people have huge, because you run into some people, oh, I'm an actor, and then you look and they have like hardly any credits, you know, you're just full of shit. But like a lot of you guys who have a lot of 
things, you don't say anything. Well, you know, you work with This Is Us and, you know, Big Little Lies. What's it like when you're coming in as pretty much a day player? You're not a regular. I mean, I know sometimes people say there's sets that are just so welcoming, and then there's some sets where people are just pricks, and you're walking on eggshells. I mean, what has your experience been? Also, because you come in, and, you know, not to, as my mom would say, toot your horn, but you come in as a Tony winner, and you've been nominated for Emmys, so you come in as a heavy hitter. You're not just some, you know, pretty boy schmuck walking off the street who did something. You've got, as you know, we call it chops. What is it like when you walk on a set? Do you think you get a different treatment because of people recognize your talent? You know, again, it depends on every set. Every set is different. Um, In general, I'm always nervous. It's like first day of school. I always think I'm not going to have any friends. They're not going to like me, and I'm going to, you know, probably not do very well. But my insurance policy is I work really hard. So I do a lot of research. I really prepare. I know what I'm going to do. I know my lines. I've thought about it. You know, I come on. I come on ready to work. Um, And, you know, I'm trying to think if I've had – I haven't had that many bad experiences on sets. And even when I had, I won't name the show. I came on a show which was a very unfriendly set, and it was sort of a machine, and they just had no time for me. And I had a scene in that where I had to break down. And so I thought, right, here we go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do whatever I want to. And I just went for it. Big, massive, emotional, embarrassing snot tears, just like kind of like laid it all out there. And they were all like stunned, kind of like it was ugly and it was raw and it was surprising. And what it did was it created space for me to do my work. But I saw that I kind of went, oh, okay, this guy is, okay, he's, he knows what he's doing. And so... You know, I didn't become like overnight friendly, but it gave me the permission to do what I wanted to do. And so, you know, normally people give you that permission, but if they won't, I'll take it. You know, and I'm not I'm not like a big ego and I'm not like an alpha male. I don't come in with a strong thing, but I come in knowing what I need to do and how to protect myself and how to take care of myself. You know, I, I'll tell you two quick stories. One is I did Big Little Lies and, you know, I came in like episode three or four. Two. I, I only I had four episodes out of six, and you know I'm Meryl Streep's lawyer, and Meryl Streep is working with me, and so I'm you know one of my rules is get to the set first. Don't make anybody wait for you. You don't make Meryl Streep wait for you. You get there first, and so I got there, and she walks in, and she was just so generous. She instantly said, "Oh my God, we're so lucky to have Dennis. I saw him do Uncle Vanya. He was one of the best I've ever seen." It's not true. But, you know, but she gave me a compliment in front of the crew, which was a way of giving me permission and space. She made the set set safe for me. She made everybody go, oh, okay. She did that. And, you know, you rely on people like that to do that. And I've I've been lucky to have that in other, other situations where they make you feel welcome. You don't have to sit there and, like, dig yourself out of a hole you know you're you're welcomed in this is us you know could not find a nicer bunch of people you just couldn't i mean it's just incredibly nice welcoming friendly people and it's a joy to work there now did you take it as a compliment when you got called back to be on the good fight with the same character i mean that must be totally as an actor they like did they just sit there and you're hanging out one day and your agent says oh yeah you know you're coming back to play the same how did that happen i mean it's funny because i think it was a combination of you know, we never know what's happening behind the scenes as actors. We don't know what phone calls our agents are getting. Um, and I had already moved to France by that point. And that, that makes it difficult, you know, for some productions. But that was one where I think um, they had been thinking about me for a while, wanted to bring me back, but just couldn't figure out how it would fit. And I was already going to be in New York doing something. And uh, we tried to, I was going to be in LA doing something. And we figured out how to make those things go back to back. But, um, you know, I love being back in that show. I just love that character. I'm so, so, so happy to be back in that. I think I did two good fights, maybe even three good fights. I can't remember. And talk about Full Circle, the last one I did was directed by Carrie Preston, who I did True Blood with. So it's a sort of, you know, worlds coming together. Now, tell me about The Nevers. You said you're, the season two just wrapped, or tell me about... Yeah, well, it's funny. It's season one still, but it was season one broken in a half because of COVID. So we did the first six... 
And then we had a big old pause, you know, for like a year. And now we've just wrapped the next six. And um, I think it'll be back on in the summer, probably. Um, it's a great show. I mean, it's Victorian girls with superpowers kicking ass. There's some future involved. Um, I play a kind of a mad scientist, hence the long beard. Um, but it, it's really interesting writing. It's really beautifully shot, beautifully done, and just great actors, great performances. Olivia Williams, Ben um, uh, Chapman, uh, James Norton, Tom Riley, Laura Donovan, Anne Skelly, Pip. Um, just amazing actors, really is. And uh, it's lush. It's sort of like the same world as Sherlock Holmes, the kind of sexy world of Sherlock Holmes. Um, but very, very unique and very, very different. I think it's a great show. Now, is that what you're shooting right now? <laughs> uh, well, we, we finished in December. Now we're doing pickups. So we're finishing up some stuff. Yeah. Now, so, yeah. okay, I have one more question because I always ask actors this. Since COVID's happened, okay, how has set life changed? Because everyone has different experiences. I mean, is it, you know, you seem someone who wants to get done and, you know, spend care about the family and you're probably... If, you know, if you see your son, you probably call your son. I don't know if he's, if he's with you or you're Zoom with him after it. But how has the set changed for you, for someone who's been working for a long time, has been on TV sets, movie sets, Broadway? What is it like for you now? And and do you think it will ever change back to, like, where you can just walk up to Crafty and grab a bunch of granola bars and put them in your bag? I think it will come back to that. I mean, you know, actors are gregarious people. Um, so, you know we have testing and we have zones and we wear shields and all this stuff. But at the end of the day, we're sitting around in a little tent, the, th- the actors doing what we always do, which is gabbing and telling stories. I mean, I sat there with Laura Donovan and Francis Tumulty and um, Ann Skelly and the four of us just sat there and told stories for like eight hours. You know, that's what actors have always done. We just sit around and talk to each other. When I was in a, a horror story last year, it was a little depressing because they had us in these chairs with these plexiglass dividers. So you can't talk. You're like, you know, and then I would come around the front of one to talk and they kind of go, oh, Dennis, you, you can't, you can't do that. And I was like, all right. So there, you know, there was a very necessary change in the way we behave, but you know, sets are still social places and we still, <laughs> You just can't stop people from being gregarious and talking to each other and sitting around. Um, you know, thank God now we feel like we're getting somewhere. The testing regime has been very, very good. I had COVID in January. I finally got it. You know what I mean? So now I'm sort of like in a different category because I'm vaxxed against everything. And now I've got my antibodies against Omicron. So I'm good for, what, two months, three months right. until the next variant comes along. Um, but it, I do think it'll go back to normal. I think you can't stop actors from being social you just can't and i i love being on sets i love talking with people and, and hanging out with people um i i do by the way tonight after i finish with you i have to go and call my son in paris and read him his good night bed story which is what i do every night um so i guess my family's pretty important to me now do you ever plan to move back to the states or are you you happy in paris i you know what i never say never because you never know what the world's going to give you but um we're pretty happy in paris um we're happy in Europe. Um, we come to the States for vacation. I've got family in the States. So I'm going to come back and forth. Uh, but you know what? It's something we always wanted to do. Trump was the spark. He was the kick in the ass to get us out of the country. But honestly, we'd always talked about living abroad. You know, we Hugo and I have always traveled a lot. Um, we spent a month in Vietnam, a month in India, a month in Turkey. We, we like traveling. I've been to China. I've been to Australia, New Zealand. I've been to, you know, uh, Argentina, Chile. We like traveling. We like to be out in the world. And so it sort of was going to happen probably anyway that we would live abroad. Um, and we wanted it for our son. Um, so, you know, he may want to come back to the States for college. And if he did, we would probably move back to be near him. I'm going to encourage him to go to college in Ireland because I can get it cheaper there as an Irish citizen. So I want to thank never, you. For never, take, never say never. I want to thank you for taking the time today. Uh, I know you're on Twitter. It's Dennis O'Hare. Yeah. And it's people. Yeah. It's Dennis with one N. And yep. and it's also you have a website, and that's right up Mike's screen. That's uh, Dennis O'Hare. Yeah. And also, um, I think my Instagram is O Dennis O H D E N I S. Okay. So that's people, 
Check out Dennis. Go to IMDb. Go down his thing. Look at all the stuff he's been. We didn't even talk about Buyers, uh, the Buyers Luck Club. I can't think of it. Dallas Buyers Club. We, yeah. we, didn't, we didn't talk about that because he's had he's had so much other stuff to talk about. So people, go check out Dennis. Look at all his. Go watch his work. Uh, go to my website, uh, CooperTalk.net. I you can find 892 episodes up there. Uh, email me wow. Cooper at CooperTalk.net. Twitter at CooperTalk. Instagram at CooperTalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vitamins, take your vegetables. I screwed that up, and I'll talk to you guys next time. Thank you.